Hello, everyone. Thank you all for joining us today as we explore the potential of universal portable benefits. I'm Shelley Stewart, the director of the Aspen Institute Future of Work Initiative, a part of the Economic Opportunities Program. The pandemic has shown us the critical importance of work-related benefits. Paid time off allows people to take care of themselves and their families and reduce the spread of illness. Health insurance connects people to needed care and prevention. Unemployment insurance stabilizes disruptions in the labor market for individuals and for society. The pandemic has also made urgently clear how many workers lack these crucial benefits. Those working outside of long-term full-time employment have struggled especially. Our system of work-related benefits evolved over the 20th century to be connected primarily to single jobs. It was only ever available to some and has become increasingly out of reach. Over the past 50 years, a gradual shift of more and more risks onto individual workers has prioritized account-based models over risk-pooled approaches and led to a patchwork of benefits in which different workers have access to different benefits and too many don't have access at all. Thinking of benefits as portable, as attached to workers rather than to specific jobs, has the potential to improve equitable access to all benefits. Workers could carry benefits with them without an interruption in coverage while receiving funding from multiple sources, whether they're working one job or several, working part-time or full-time, working independently or as an employee. The conversation around portable benefits, though, has become dominated by conversations about the platform-based gig economy. Though important, a relatively small portion of the workforce. And much of this conversation has lost sight of the true potential of universal benefits, a system accessible to all workers in all sectors and all arrangements. Today, we want to focus on that potential and that vision. As we think about rebuilding work-related benefits for an equitable economic recovery, we must reflect on what benefits are available to workers, how they're delivered, and how we can improve systems to better equip all workers to thrive. The Future of Work Initiative will be releasing a report that dives more deeply into these ideas soon and prevents action steps for policymakers and other decision makers, especially at the state and local level, to act on. We look forward to all of your engagement with that and stay tuned to receive an email when it's live in the next week or so. Today, we are very fortunate to learn from leaders who have worked uh, to learn from leaders who have worked to expand work-related benefits to more workers. Palak, Lisa, and Andrew will share more about the workers they represent, the challenges they face, the benefits they've helped to develop, and what they've learned along the way. Before we begin, a quick review of technology. So all of all of our audience is muted. We do welcome your questions. You can use the Slido box that's on the bottom of your screen for any questions or comments. Uh, and you can also submit questions uh, through the Q&A tab, as well as upvote other people's questions. Uh, and we encourage you to share your perspectives. If you have ideas, examples, or resources related to today's topic, please introduce yourself and, and share those through the Ideas tab, also in the Slido box. We always appreciate your feedback. So before you leave the event, please do take a moment to respond to our quick feedback survey. You'll find it in the polls tab 
also in the Slido box at the bottom of your screen. We are thrilled with the participation in today's event and many thanks to those of you who submitted questions in advance. We'll try to incorporate some of these into the panel discussion and we'll get to as many as possible during the Q&A. We encourage you to tweet about this conversation using our hashtag TalkOpportunity. And if you have any technical issues that come up during the webinar, please chat to us in the Slido Ideas tab or email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. This webinar is being recorded and will be shared via email and posted to our website. Closed captions are available for the discussion. You can just click the CC button at the bottom of the video to activate them. Now, let me briefly introduce our speakers. Their full biographies are up on the event website, so I won't go into much detail, but please do take a look. So our panelists today include Lisa Anderson, the Assistant Executive Director of Writers, Writers Guild of America West, Andrew Greenblatt, Executive Director of the Independent Drivers Guild Benefits Fund, and Palak Shah, the Social Innovations Director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Now, let me introduce our moderator for today's conversation, Anmal Chada, Principal of Reimagining Capitalism at Omidyar Network. Anmal is a sociologist with expertise in economic and racial inequality, job quality, and the safety net. He managed California's Future of Work Commission as well. Anmal, we look forward to hearing today's conversation. I'll hand it over to you. Great. Thanks so much for that, Shelley. Um, and I think just by way of framing the discussion a little bit, I think it's clear to everybody that we're at a really important inflection point in terms of work and jobs in the labor market. We've seen enormous upheaval in the labor market over the last year or two um, because you know, during the COVID pandemic. But I think long predating that, we've seen a long-term decline in job quality. And we know about rising wage inequality, uh, but there are different aspects of job quality beyond wages. Um, and benefits are a really important part of that. And so we've seen this 40-year decline in job quality uh, that's now uh, merged with this COVID pandemic. And I think we're at a really important moment of re-examining work and jobs today. I think before the pandemic, there had been so much conversation around technology and the idea of the robot apocalypse and the idea of, you know, the questions then were, very much oriented around what types of work or jobs are we going to be doing in the future? How is that going to change uh, you know, the jobs that we have in the future? And I think the question before us today, the much more pressing question is, what is it that we want work and jobs to do for us in the future, rather than what are we going to be doing for work in the future? And this question around universal portable benefits, I think, is an important aspect of that. And so let's just let's jump in directly with this speaker today, this really illustrious group that we have today. Um, and let's, I think the first question is just to share a bit about, about the workers that you represent and what, are, what some of the challenges are that they, they face in terms of benefits. So we could start with you, Lise. Sure. Um, well, I, I work for the Writers Guild of America West, and we at the Writers Guild represent um, television and movie writers, writers for new media. Um, they typically, our, our members screenwriters, TV writers, they typically go from one, working from one studio to the next several times throughout the year. And portable benefits are absolutely key. In fact, in fact, um, historically, they've been an important part of what all, um, in the, all the entertainment industry unions provide because um, in, whether you're working on a crew or you're an actor or writer um, or director or anyone else, you, you tend to go from one, project to the next one movie to the next one um 
television show to the next. And there's not, it, it's a different sort of um, employment than, you know, what we're used to working 40 plus hours a week at a regular workplace, whether it's at home or in an office, they typically work, our, our mind members work from sometimes two weeks to 10 weeks to 12 weeks, and then maybe several months without a job. So having portable benefits is absolutely crucial. It's absolutely core to um, what's important to them. And that's a model that's been around for a long time, right? I mean, we, we, yeah. th this discussion around portable benefits feels new in some ways, but this has been around for decades in, in, in the entertainment yeah. industry. Absolutely. From um, the Writers Guild first introduced um, its pension plan in 1960, and we joined the IOTSI, if I remember correctly, the IOTSI health fund in the mid 60s. And we created our own um, health, a standalone health fund um, in 1973. It's both of them are um, multi employer plans or Taft Hartley plans where um, different employers make contributions and allows members who earn whatever the, the thresholds are um, in earnings, they're able to earn um, benefits going forward for health insurance, you know, they get it for sort of four quarters going forward. And for pension, you know, they earn five years of pension, you know, five years of earnings for, from any signatory employer at any time. And then when it comes time to retire, they'll have a defined benefit pension. And that's been crucial for since before I was born. So a very long time. Yeah. Yeah, so we have a proven model there. That's that's yeah. this isn't necessarily an, an entirely new idea. And and Pollock, how about you? And and Pollock, what about uh, the work that you're doing in your sector? Tell tell us a little bit about the workers that you represent and the challenges they face in terms of benefits. Well, you're uh, muted. You're muted, Pollock. The, um, so I'm the Social Innovations Director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and um, we are an alliance of more than 70 organizations around the country um, and local chapters who are working for the rights, respect, and dignity for domestic workers um, who face pretty unique challenges. And so thank you for the question, Anmol. Um, so there are about two and a half million domestic workers in this country. They are the mostly women um, workers who take care of the people in the spaces we care most about, nannies, caregivers for the uh, people who are aging and, and people with disabilities, um, people who uh, clean our homes. Um, and um, as I said, oh, domestic workers are overwhelmingly women, 90 plus percent. Um, about half of them are women of color and um you know, domestic work jobs are poverty wage jobs. The median wage for domestic workers is about $12. Um, and uh, domestic workers are likely, are three times as likely to be in poverty. Um, and the challenges, though, um, especially around benefits, are pretty unique and deeply embedded in the history um, and culture of domestic work. And so on the cultural front, you know, oftentimes we... Uh, this is surprising when we point it out, but then it's obvious, right, that domestic work is not even really considered real work. Um, we even in our language call it help instead of work. Um, and a lot of this has to do with the history of it being considered women's work um, and the devaluation of, of all of the work that women do, paid and unpaid, um, especially in the home. The other challenges around domestic workers and benefits um, uh, is around labor exclusions and the history of labor exclusions, which we won't get into here, but so many of the laws that we take for granted and protections that we take for granted 
um, excluded um, domestic workers and farm workers. And, you know, so much of our work has been around closing um, um, and ending some of those exclusions. Um, and then lastly, the labor market structure and the structure of the employment relationship um, also has a lot to do um, with why benefits are so difficult for this population, right? So similar, um, uh, Lisa, to the way that you described um, writers and others in in the entertainment industry, domestic workers are also working, you know, in gigs. Um, and for example, a house cleaner could work 40 hours a week, but it might be for eight or 10 different homes. Um, and I think the um, other challenge that makes the provision of benefits pretty difficult is that most of the workers are working for a family. They're working for a household. Um, there isn't a firm or a, a large company or, you know, um, another enterprise that's sitting in between the relationship. And so um, and then layered on top of that is um, issues of immigration and people who don't have work authorization and domestic work jobs often being um, one of the few jobs that are available um, to recent immigrants um, in the country. Um, and so all of those structural characteristics, right, contribute to the informality um, and the fact that oftentimes workers aren't getting a W-2 or a 1099. They're literally just getting cash um, on the counter um, and um, constructing um, a system um, to protect workers in those kinds of conditions is obviously very, very challenging. Um, and that's yeah. some of what we've been working on. Yeah, and the employers in your industry are essentially families, right? They're parents and they're they're homemakers, and so it's it's um, it may be an unusual situation, or it may not it may not be the obvious place where people would be thinking about also providing benefits. Is that right? I think that that's right. I mean, I think it's it varies in different parts of our industry, right? So home care and where we've got a lot of collaboration and leadership from um, our sister union, I mean, uh, sisters and brothers in SEIU, for example, organizing home care workers is a very different industry because of federal investment and dollars that are pouring into that market versus a, like house cleaning, which is just yeah, really off the grid informal um, part of, of, of the, the domestic work labor markets. So I think that there is there is, it differs in terms of the different verticals, but I think, yeah, a lot of times domestic workers are working for a family and oftentimes families are really strapped, you know, like the majority of, of people in this country aren't making a living wage. And so there is, but everybody's going to need care, right? Like, so um, Rosalind Carter very famously said, <clears throat> and I, you know, can turn it back to you on Molnet, like there's kind of four types of people in this world, people who need care, people, you know, so that, that whole thing around like either you need care or you're going to need to give care. Um, is pretty universal across families across this country. And if you're not making a living wage and you haven't made a living wage your whole life, then it's gonna be very difficult for you to pay a living wage and benefits, but everybody needs care. And so I think that's, you know, we can talk more about the solutions and the benefits and as we kind of progress in that conversation. But I think the fact that families are in the employer role and oftentimes families don't necessarily see themselves as employers in the economy um, has, a, and some of that's cultural and some of that's structural and some of that's, you know, um, changing, I think. Um, but that, I think, contributes to the challenge of the provision of a safety net, a formal safety net um, to these workers. Great. I think there's a lot more to think about in terms of the growing importance of care in the economy. And we'll come back to a lot of those questions, I think. Um, and, and Angela, I wanted to give you a chance as well to jump in and talk a little bit about the workers that you represent and the challenges around benefits specifically for that workforce. Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, I'm Andrew Greenblatt. I work with IDG Benefits Fund. It's a sister organization to a group called the Independent Drivers Guild, 
which was uh, is an organization that was created by the Machinist Union to work with um, black car drivers in New York. And black car drivers means Uber, Lyft. We have a, another gig uh, company here called Via, but also the old traditional um, black car companies that would you know drive stockbrokers home from work at 10 o'clock at night, that kind of stuff. In fact, when the machinists first started working with them, uh, that was back in uh, the 90s and it was working with those traditional companies. Um, so, sorry, I'm getting a call and I can't make it stop ringing. Um, so, um, um, I don't know what to do about that. So, um, the, um, <laughs> So um, um, our workers, uh, you know, I was listening to people, you know, Lisa first started talking about how her workers are going to work for days or weeks or sometimes months on, on a project. Um, uh, Palak was talking about how it, it could be half a day. Um, in our business, it's minutes, right? You pick somebody up, you drop somebody off, you're waiting for your next gig. Um, and so, and often our workers will have uh, more than one app on at a time. So identifying kind of who are you working for at the moment can be difficult if you're waiting for your next gig. Um, um, so that that's a big part of it. Um, also, our workers tend to be in New York State. Uh, many of them, it's a full-time job. And, um, and, and there's kind of a high barrier to entry. If you wanna be a driver in New York City, you need certain kinds of licensing, you have to take certain kinds of courses, you have to pay $6,000 a year in insurance. Um, so those are people who need to drive all the time in order to make that worthwhile. While in uh, the rest of New York State, we, it reflects more what you see this kind of gig work being in the rest of the country, which is people will log on to the apps when they need some money, they will log off, um, they, uh, you know, maybe they're saving up for, you know, their daughter's wedding or some vacation they want to take or whatever. So it, it's much more episodic, the work, uh, and will be considered kind of secondary to what, to what they normally do. While in New York City, it's a career. And so um, they, they, uh, they need to, to do that. Um, it, it is very low wage work. Um, so uh, we, we do see a, a lot of people uh, living in, in poverty uh, or, or just above uh, doing this kind of work. Uh, and in New York City in particular, it's immigrant work. 90% of the people who drive were born in another country. Uh, it's also very male work. 90% of the people who drive in New York City uh, are men or 91% are men. Um, so it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it, that's kind of who we are. Uh, the biggest challenge they face uh, is just that they're they're low wage, they're poor, uh, and everything that comes with that. And so when you're poor, you you know we we uh, um, uh, did a lot of research into our workforce. Um, uh, only about half of them have uh, any money saved at all, uh, and of that, almost all of them uh, have less than four hundred dollars saved. So when you think about any of the kinds of things that come up in life, uh, they cost more than four hundred dollars. You get a cavity, it costs more than four hundred dollars. If you end, if you have to see a doctor, it costs more than four hundred dollars. If something's wrong with your house or your car or whatever, it costs more than four hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, for for them, benefits can be the difference between making it and not making it. Uh, and so, and it's all tied back to to just low wages. So yeah, that's that's who our population is and why we do this. Great, thanks for that. And and I think. What's common across all of you is that the organizations that you're working at, they've all worked to expand benefits and, and benefit access to workers in pretty innovative ways. Um, and, and I just want to, let's start again with Lisa, if you want to describe a bit about, about what you've developed, what benefits are offered, um, how are the programs structured? Sure. So um, as I mentioned, we have a pension plan. It's defined ben a benefit plan. It's been in existence since um, 1960. We have, um, a, also a 
self-funded health insurance plan. And it's, it's a Taft-Hartley fund where it's jointly managed by union trustees and management trustees. Um, both of those are funded by contributions that the employers make to these funds. And, and I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, contrary to what Palak and, and uh, uh, sorry, blanking the other <laughs> David mentioned a second ago was, you know, the employers for our members are multi-billion dollar studios. They've got money. They've got money. They've got pots and pots of money. They have more money than they know what to do with. So they line their pockets with it. And the last thing they want to do is share it with their employees. And so, but we make them because they can't make their money unless our members and other union members that create the product that they sell to Netflix and ABC and, and on, put in movie theaters, unless they pay, unless, you know, unless our members work, they don't get to make their money. So, um, so anyway, so we have a defined benefit plan for the, for the pension plan, which is in pretty good shape. It's been pretty, um, prudently, uh, uh, financed and, and, and marshaled over the last, you know, whatever, 60 years, um, with a health fund that's in pretty good shape. And, and in the last several negotiations, we've had to have negotiate to have co more contributions made um, into the health fund, into the pension plan as the healthcare costs have skyrocketed, for example, we're, you know, in no different uh, situation than any other um, provider of health insurance. In, in the last negotiation, um, in a year and a half ago, um, we were able to negotiate for a paid parental leave benefit. And um, that was and in, in basically followed on, on negotiations that we did in 2017, which allowed for um, an unpaid job protection benefit for people who were taking, uh, worked on TV shows and, and went on um, leave, parental leave. Part of the problem with, with writers and, and is that, like I mentioned, they don't often work, frankly, enough hours to, to get the time and service requirements that are mandated for certain state statutory benefits. So um, uh, these, what we were able to get in 2017, and then again, most recently, um, helps to address those, those problems. So this paid parental leave benefit just started um, last, this last May. Um, it's, there are certain requirements for it. It's very conservatively um, funded. It, insofar as that we don't know how, how many people are actually going to, we're going to use it. So we decided we're going to be as prudent as we can with the benefits. And um, so far it's it, basically, we agreed that it would be um, $2,000 a week. It's a wage replacement. So it's not, people can't work and get this benefit at the same time. Um, so it's taxable and all that stuff. And it's up to eight weeks from over the course of 12 months from the time of the birth adoption or foster placement of a child. Um, those are sort of our main benefits that we, we currently have. And they're so far pretty popular. Again, we're able, we were able to get it because our employers have money. They've got lots and lots and lots of money. And these things were monumentally important to our members to be able to have families. A lot of writers, careers, especially those that work in television, tend to work when they work, you know, eight, 10, 12 weeks, they tend to work 100 hours a week or, or more. There's, you know, they're 
I'm sure all of you have heard of the potential, you know, the, the labor issues that are going on with IATSE right now and, you know, the lack of turnaround time, for example, with, with the crews. It's not that bad because the off-riders don't have to drive with, you know, three hours on, of, of sleep, but it's not good. <laughs> it's not good at all. And again, Netflix and ABC and Warner Brothers and all the rest, they can't make money unless our members work. So we had the leverage to be able to demand, you have the money, you can afford it, you need to give this to us so that we can continue in this job. Mm -hmm. one, one of the things I think is coming out for me in, in hearing you talking about this, right, is, is beyond the mechanics of the benefits, right? The critical role of worker power, right? Absolutely. And the idea that, that that in this industry, it's it's both that the the companies or employers have been very successful and they're you know they have high valuations and have mm -hmm. the resources to be able to provide the benefits. Right. You have a vehicle or mechanism in place through the unions, right? Through right. workers, that's how workers are able to demand to to, to to demand these benefits. Is that that sounds right? That's exactly right. I mean, the the writer skill in particular has a, a proud and earned history of being really um, strong. And we everything we've got, every major accomplishment that the, the union was able to accomplish has been either because of a union, I mean, sorry, because of a strike or at the cusp of a strike. We got the pension plan after the 1960 strike. We got the health fund after the 1973 strike, we, in, 19, in uh, 2008, we got jurisdiction over streaming writing for Netflix and Hulu and all the rest. All that didn't exist before. It was it was um, at the writer at the company's discretion. And then now, you know, the the vast bulk of what people do is watch TV streaming. They don't watch it necessarily on regular television. So. Um, but it's only because of a strike that we were able to get these things that labor power is everything. It's everything. And we would have next to nothing if we didn't have the solidarity and, and planning and dedication and, you know, understanding of our own, or, you know, writers own power and value mm -hmm. and then right. use it. Yeah. You got to, right. you got to use it. If, even if you just, if you have it, but you don't use it, it you know, nothing happens <laughs> right i think that's key so Pollock, let's pick up that thread a little bit with, with <laughs> like i'm like on the opposite end of the economy <laughs> i know lisa you're killing me here to kill <laughs> i know i'm sorry <laughs> but it's it's it, the fact is that that we you know we work for our, our my members work for multi-billion dollar industries as opposed to you know, the minute employers or the, you know, half a day employers, the family employers, or the person who's, you know, calling someone up on, on Lyft to pick them up. I mean, it's a very different, it's a very different scenario, I think. Yeah. It's different right. in key, it's different in those ways, right? I think that some, there are some of these commonalities that we talked about earlier, right? With yeah, absolutely. Of, with the um, non-traditional aspects of work and not being in this nine to five full-time right. gig arrangement um, or full-time right. arrangement. Right. Um, and, and yeah, Puck, I wanted to pick that thread up with you as well and, and give you a chance to talk a little bit about the innovative work that the NDWA has been doing around benefits um, and expanding those ac benefits access to workers. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I kind of said it as like a joke in terms of like being on the opposite end of of the economy. But in some ways, like it, it is actually true, right, in the sense of one-to-one um, -one employment relationships with families and um 
not super deep pockets. You know, there's obviously a sector of the domestic employers that are the 1% that can't afford to pay more than what, you know, workers are being paid. But majority of the market isn't in only in that kind of upper end of the market. And so, um, and I'm sure there's lots of employers um, on this webinar and people who know people who are employers um, uh, and everybody felt the pain of that, right? During the pandemic when <laughs> a lot of supports disappeared um, virtually overnight. So in terms of what we've been able to do, we are really in the early, early stages of trying to solve um, this problem, which is super multifaceted for us, as I've described. Um, but I can share what, you know, what little we've been able to accomplish and just kind of how we've been thinking about everything. So about, um, I would say maybe less than a couple years ago, we launched um, a prototype, um, a product called Aaliyah. And it is a portable benefits platform for domestic workers. And it started um, in in kind of what I call the voluntary context, right? It started in this context where it's a mechanism, the technical, it's like a software pro product, right? That has the technological piping to allow for the contributions from many different households to make it into a single Aaliyah account um, for the domestic worker. Now, like people often ask me, like, what kind of benefits are you offering? Well, it's like, there's not tons of money that's coming into these. Like, I don't think we can have a paid leave program with the dollars that are coming in. They're super micro contributions. And right now it's all accruing in paid time off and very, very small insurance products like a, a life insurance product. Um, but the concept really, right, was around, hey, domestic workers are working 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, and they um, aren't working all those hours in one place, and they aren't working for a traditional firm or a factory or a place like Walmart, but they also deserve a safety net because they're also getting sick and they also, you know, um, deserve um, some time off. And so that was kind of the construct of the system that um, we've built. Um, and, um, you know, I think some of our theory of change, because, you know, we're, we're, what Aaliyah and, and NDWA Labs is situated within the social movement um, of domestic workers in this country. And so much of our vision for this was both catalytic, right? It was like around like, okay, how do we advance a set of ideas around benefits and the lack thereof, especially for people who are working so hard and as the pandemic revealed are so essential. Um, uh, and how can we actually start the first draft of like, what would a solution actually look like? What, what, how can we expand our public imagination around how do you solve this problem? And so I think the, the, the kind of first draft of Aaliyah that was out there did a really good job of that, right? But it is still hampered by a lot of the challenges that we face, which is there's not a lot, enough money floating around for a real safety net to be extracted from household employers. Um, and so ultimately, I think a safety net for domestic workers will must have the government will have to have a role in in funding um, the safety net for care workers, given how low wage they are and given, um, <laughs> you know, like um, that the employers are not. Um, as deep pocketed as the entertainment companies are, right? And so, but we're, so we're gonna have to figure that piece of it out, but um, there's so many dimensions of solving the problem that Aaliyah is taking us a step forward in, in a voluntary context and showing that. 
what we were able to do um, as a movement is to say, okay, that's a great starting point. How do we actually start to mandate um, a safety net for domestic workers? And so the next advance that we made was basically in passing a law. The first law of its kind is embedded in the domestic work Bill of Rights in Philadelphia that established the first right to prorated um, portable paid time off um, in the city of Philadelphia. It's only it's for domestic workers. Now, that's a concept, um, and I promise you it will be a nightmare um, to implement in informal, disaggregated um, cash labor markets. And it's an advance, right, in terms of, okay, like what, you know, for us, like, the work isn't even seen as work half the time, right? And so it's, it's um, the, assert, the, the existence of Aaliyah, the assertion of the right of paid time off is moving the ball forward um, in terms of saying, hey, there's a whole bunch of people that are working and they deserve a safety net and they don't have one. What are we going to do about it? And I think we're at this really interesting time post, you know, we're not really post pandemic, although I wish we were, but, you know, kind of this many months into the pandemic where um, the essentiality of like domestic workers and care work and all of these kinds of um, all kinds of frontline workers, not just domestic workers, obviously, um, has really kind of captured a lot of the conversation around and exposed what we have always known, right? Which is we have an insufficient safety net and an insufficient foundation um, for workers in this country. But as organizers, it's a big opening. Um, and um, I think we've been continuing um, to push forward with this experimentation around, okay, well, what would a mandate look like and how will that play out? And how can we, using the kind of forcing function of passing legislation, um, seed um, a, a series of experiments, um, which can borrow, Lisa, from, I think, a lot of the models and what you figured out, but we'll have some very, very tough questions to answer given the structural differences. And then lastly, um, the last iteration of Aaliyah and its benefits what is a pilot that we announced, um, and this is, Andrew, more similar to the space that you're in with um, a company, a gig economy company called Handy, um, which is essentially the, it's kind of, I hate to frame it this way, Andrew, but it's the Uber of cleaning. It is an on-demand dispatch company that um, is an app-based company that dispatches cleaners, um, uh, to homes. And um, in June, we announced a pilot program um, that um, had three, uh, kind of had three main components. One was raising the base pay in, in pilot states. Um, the pilot states are Florida, Indiana, and Kentucky, um, places where we have a long way to go to build a lot of labor power. Um, and um, the idea was to, in those places, could we advance um, around the question of of improving wages, benefits, and um, creating a mechanism for handy pros, the workers, the domestic workers on that platform to um, give input and have essentially a way to communicate directly with uh, company leaders. The PTO component is really interesting because it's $1.25 per hour. Um, and so if you worked, you know, 30, 40 hours on the platform, that would be the equivalent of, you know, above 15 days um, paid time off for the year, which is really a lot for, for domestic workers, especially since most of them have zero. Um, and um, the um, Aaliyah platform, um, a different instance of the Aaliyah platform is being used to manage the benefits, um, the paid time off benefits for workers. So that is a really live and very recent experiment. It just launched in June. 
Um, uh, but I think we're starting to see, and that's a, that's a situation that's more similar, I think, to the situations that the two of you are in, where there's a single payer um, for, for the cost of the paid time off benefits versus in some of the earlier contexts for Aaliyah where, you know, a worker may have 10, 15, 20 household employers. Um, and that's a different problem um, that we're also working on as well. That's great. Thanks so much for that, Pollock. And then Andrew, I wanted to ask you as well, some same question. What what are the, you know, how what are the innovative ways that your organization has worked to expand benefits to, to, to the workers you represent um, given the challenges in your industry? So so we looked at um, what was going on uh, in Hollywood for our model. So Lisa, the, the work you've been doing and it's been around so long was very inspirational to us uh, in terms of trying to figure out how to do this. Um, we, we faced somewhat different challenges though. So we had to we had to kind of make it fit a different model. So first of all, the work we've been doing goes back to the 1990s, way before there were app companies, when uh, the machinist union was able to uh, work with black car companies and convince the state legislature to set up a, a um, workers' compensation benefit for drivers. Because drivers get in accidents, they get hurt. Uh, someone has to pay their, their medical bills, disability, uh, things like that. And so that, has been around since uh, the late 1990s. It's called the Black Car Fund. And we've used that kind of historical uh, anomaly in New York State. It's the only state in the union that has this. We use that kind of historical anomaly in New York to build on and use that model. So the way the Black Car Fund is funded is there's a 2.5% surcharge on every ride. So if you ever come to New York, and I urge you to do that, our tourist industry really could use your help. Um, uh, so uh, when you come to New York, uh, hop in a black car like an Uber or a Lyft. And when you get out, your receipt will have at the bottom the black car fund, and there'll be uh, a two and a half percent charge on that. Um, and that money goes into a fund to pay for workers comp. Well, we took that and actually now it won't be a two and a half percent charge, it'll be a three percent charge. Because uh, we convinced the state legislature to, to tack another half a percent onto that, uh, which works out pre-pandemic, that would have been about $30 million a year uh, to buy benefits for these workers. Uh, and so with that, we can give uh, free vision benefits. So like this pair of glasses came from our vision supplier. Uh, they're, uh, they're great. Um, uh, free uh, dental benefits. So, uh, you know, a, a checkup is free. I, uh, a uh, cavity is $5, you know, real solid. This isn't just a discount program. It's a real uh, high value dental program is now available to drivers who reach a certain uh, number of trips, which basically works out to be, you know, more than a half time driver. So you don't have to be driving 60 hours a week, but you can't just be someone who drives, you know, once in a while to get that. Although the vision benefits you can, you can be. Um, we have a mental health benefit. There's been a lot of stress, especially through the pandemic on mental health. We had a rash of uh, suicides in, in New York of uh, professional uh, for hire drivers. And so we were able to take some of that money and set up a counseling program uh, run by the Independent Drivers Guild. So it's really targeted to, to the drivers and what they're facing. All sorts of interesting problems with stigma in the immigrant communities uh, to come to these. So how you reach out to those communities has, has been really part of the challenge. But we've been able to have uh, thousands of sessions for hundreds of, of drivers since we've set that up. Um, 
we've been able to add on to that now that we've got, you know, kind of a good base of, uh, of high value uh, benefits for these workers. And remember, I started before saying, you know, one cavity ruins your, your family. Uh, now that we're covering some of that, not everything we want to, we, we would love short term disability, for example, you know, you get to, to an accident and uh, not when you're driving with for work and suddenly you can't drive for a couple of months and you miss, miss your car payments, you're, you've ruined your family. So there's certainly more to go. We have a, a long way to go. Um, but we're, we're building onto that. We've added discount programs and other things that, that are low cost, but can be high impact for, for the workers, helping them fight traffic tickets and uh, things like that. Um, but the, the model here, what I want to carve out of this is looking at the, the keys that make this work. So for Lisa, the key was they have money, we have power. Let's sit down at a table and see how we divide those two things up. Um, for us, it's uh, you're in a regulated in industry, we're going to get the government involved. And so the government uh, puts the, so the power there for us was uh, about mobilizing drivers and, uh, and our allies in, in traditional labor to push for these kinds of, of, of benefits. And our, and our next step in that is um, we're, getting, we're attempting to get a carve out in New York to allow these workers to actually form a union uh, and, and have that uh, be a more traditional negotiation uh, with the companies. But we, uh, but but it's it's again it's 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 about power and it's about who's got the money or in our case control to get the money to the workers. So uh, Lisa's model is more of a traditional uh, labor model. Uh, our model is uh, more of a traditional regulatory model. Um, and um, and for us that that seems to make sense because uh, you know the trips are so so short and so small. You're bouncing from job to job to job all the time. Um, there is this misclassification issue. 28% of, of, uh, of the states have, have classified these workers as, uh, as independent contractors. The rest of the states have just been kind of vague about it. Um, so there, we haven't had any real you know, settlement on that. So this model kind of uh, works around that issue by saying, well, it's not about the gig company paying, it's about the company, the, the uh, passenger paying. And so if the passenger wants to get in this car, there's going to be a surcharge on that ride. It's going to pay for workers' comp. It's going to pay for dental. It's going to pay for vision, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we've, we've been able to handle the issue, uh, to handle the issue that way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's, um, those are kind of the key lessons that we've learned. And from here, it's just a matter of building and building and building. We're, we're, we, we don't see ourselves as anywhere near done on this. We see this as uh, we've, well, it, for the first couple of years, it was just vision and telemedicine, and we were proving the model out. Now we've added dental and mental health, um, uh, and we, we just feel like this is a model we can build on first in New York and then around the country. That's great. Thanks, Andrew. And there's, so this is a question that's been submitted by, uh, by um, one of the viewers, and I think this is, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the rideshare industry around portable benefits, and we've seen a lot of these proposals coming from the gay companies themselves. And I think... Mm -hmm. It's uh, what I would love to hear is if you could talk a little bit about how does the uh, your idea of universal benefits, how does that contrast with what the, some of the proposals that we're seeing from some, from these larger gay companies? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's all about money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, the 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 uh, the gig companies um, uh, they sell more product when the product is cheaper, and mm -hmm. so their goal is to you know squeeze that down as little as possible. And so what they've been doing, like in Prop 22 in California, is they throw some crumbs at the workers. They make anything that's decent out of reach for any for, for the overwhelming majority of, of the drivers. They try to convince the public that, hey, look at all the great stuff we're doing. They currently have nothing. And if you vote for this, they'll have all these great benefits. Um, 
and and then they use that to kind of lock out anything else. So it's like, oh, now this is settled. We don't have to talk about this anymore. Um, uh, you know, and that's been sort of the company's uh, uh, attitude with success, right? So, um, uh, you know, I uh, they're good at this. <laughs> you know, venture capitalists and the people they fund know how to make money. Um, and so, you know, it's our job to uh, organize workers and build that power so that we can go uh, to the people who regulate these industries, to the to the legislatures and, and in New York City, the Tax and Limousine Commission and so on, and get what the workers really need. So, you know, you just got to see where it's coming from. So if the, the, the workers are designing programs that are valuable for workers, the businesses are designing programs that are valuable for businesses. And so that's the difference. Um, uh, yeah, that's the difference. <laughs> I, think that's, I think I'll leave it there. Great, thanks. And, and I think, so another question that's coming in is is um, what? So we we've we are used to this the traditional employer model of benefits that that Shelley described at the beginning, and there's some clear shortcomings with that model as we know now, um, as as we've seen, and 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 that's been exacerbated throughout the pandemic as well. But at, at the same time, we have uh, some notion of a social compact around work and jobs with employer, where employers are one part of that social compact, right? And so I think, so the question here is what, how do we move towards a model that's a universal portable benefits model of work without letting employers off the hook in terms of their role in, in providing benefits through uh, as part of that social compact. Um, and that's, that can be for anyone, Pollock's nodding. I don't know if you want to take that first. Well, I mean, I don't have any clear answers because that is a really good question and a really hard question. I think, you know, there's like design, I guess the way I think about it is there's design questions and questions of like first principle, like how would you design an ideal system, right? And there's a whole bunch of things about the way we have, as Shelly talked about, like a patchwork system and some things are more universal and some things are less and some things are perks like kombucha and a whole bunch of other stuff that like, you know, you get at work and some things are, you know, like really vital, like childcare, right? And so if we were designing a system from first principles, I don't know that we would arrive at this patchwork thing that we have going on, right? So that's one thing. But on the other hand, we our political terrain is actually quite difficult. And so it's very, very, very challenging I mean, we're barely hanging on, you know, to to uh, um, a balance of power right now. And it is pretty risky, I would say, you know, I'm not a political expert by any stretch of the imagination, but it seems pretty risky to open up a whole bunch of things um, in this moment. And so now we're kind of left with like maneuvering within these kind of sub-op in a suboptimal terrain which I think is gonna be very difficult to get to an optimal outcome, right? And so, and, and like we have to make progress wherever we can. So like, I think some of what we are doing, I think a lot of what you're doing, Andrew, like, right, we're, we're continuing to push, to push forward on this. I, this is not the official NDWA Alliance <laughs> position and probably I should not go out too much on a limb here, um, but I, I don't know. I just am increasing. So it's like almost like benefits is one dimension in my mind to 
the kind of economic security that like everybody deserves, um, right? Especially when you're working. Let's put it, you know, let's even just like talk about working people for a second and a different kind of system for people who are unable uh, to work. But when you're working, right? Um, and <laughs> benefits is just like, it's like the, the scale and scope of the problem that low wage workers especially are in is so great that it doesn't seem like benefits alone can solve this problem right? It's like living wages is like another huge dimension to it. And so in some ways, it's like putting scat, like benefit, the benefits question, no doubt. And we, I'm an active proponent and working on these questions day in and day out and have been for eight years on behalf of domestic workers. But it is one slice of the solution of kind of what we need. And Andrew, I think you, you kind of talked about this in, in the way that you were laying out the solutions, right, around wages. And it's scaffolding, but our foundation isn't really secure. And so we need to work on that foundation to the to the audience members question. And we that is going to be a long trajectory to really work on that and to build the kind of power that it will take to not only extract the kinds of um, benefits that Lisa, you have been able to do, which didn't happen overnight. It happened over decades. Um, right. And at the same time, um, figure out a public solution where there isn't a solution like that that's readily available. So I don't know. I don't think I really answered the question, but I've kind of, you know, because I think it's a hard question. I think that is actually the question. What does a fair and equitable safety net for everybody in this country actually look like? I'm just speaking for myself, but I thought that was an excellent answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know you're afraid of. Um, yeah, no, that was that was better than I could come up with by a mile. But it's you know it's it's it, it's exactly right. I mean, the foundation across the country depend no matter what industry you're in. I mean, obviously the the people that I represent tend to make more money as a whole, given who they work for and given the industry itself, but. Um, there's, it's not a, it's not a stable job. It's not a long-term employment. It's very, it's not common that, you know, writers are able to make, you know, a long-term career out of it more than, you know, a few years. There's obviously the biases that exist and, and um, in the employment and the history of, of, of the energy ministry. Um, but foundationally, you know, to be able to make a living, to be able to pay, you know, feed your family and, and put a roof over your head is that's hard enough. That's hard enough for the people that I represent, much less the people that Andrew and Block represent, that that it's, you know, there are so many things to have to build up and, and create before we even kind of get to the scaffolding, which is absolutely critical. But if you can't feed yourself, then, and you can't, you don't have a place to live, <laughs> even though you're working full time or more than full time, there's, you know, the other things are um, a little bit of an afterthought. Yeah, I, I was I was struck by one part of the question where you, you described you described it as a social contract, and oh man, are we really relying on you know for profit corporations to be in a social contract so our basic human needs are met? Like, is anyone paying attention to like late stage American capitalism? Right. Like, I do not want my eggs in that basket. Like, oh, my God. You know, where this works really well is where workers have power. 
So like Lisa laid out a really, really great program that's gone back for decades because the workers have power. But you know, about 6% of private sector workers in America are in a union. 94% aren't. And that number is getting worse over time. Right. And like, so that's what we're going to like hope that the, their social contract goodwill is going to take care of our basic needs like health care. Right. Like, no, that's not where I want this. To, I don't know where I want the story to end. So, right. you know, like there's so there's the long term first principles question, like sh- like should child care be up to the social contract, you know, of, of and social conscious of your employer? Uh, should health care? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, and then the second is, um, well, how is, is more short term? Well, OK, we do have these long term political questions. How do we become a country that actually catches up to the rest of the industrialized world on these questions? Um, but in the meantime, you know, what we're working on is what are kind of short term stopgap measures that we can do to build worker power? That's the most important thing is you got to build worker power first. So how do you do How do you build worker power? And then how do you take that worker power and turn that into things that the workers really need? And those are the questions I think we have to, we, we have we're trying to address right now. Yeah, I think that's great. I think uh, another question that's come up, and I, at least I'll direct this to you, is, is there's been a question submitted about the about um, extending access to hourly workers at small businesses, and mm-hmm. uh, say example uh, employers with less than ten employees, um, and what, there's an audience member who works at small businesses who wants to be able to offer benefits. But it's a huge challenge financially, and mm-hmm. especially with how COVID has affected the food industry in, in particular. Mm-hmm. How can policies be designed to support smaller businesses? And and the reason I'm thinking about the entertainment industry right, is because, as I understand it, your model is not dependent on the size of the employer. That's right. right. So right. Uh, you could talk a little bit more, more about that. That it's independent of. It can be a small firm in the entertainment industries, but but workers right. will work there, so I get access to those benefits. Right. Well, I well the way <clears throat> excuse me. The thing, the question I think is is an excellent one. The um, way that our benefits work is, it's again fundamentally it's a multi-employer plan. So all the employers, no matter what the size, whether it's you know one person hiring, you know with one that the company is one person and they hire a writer to Warner Brothers or Disney or wherever else is left of the six companies that are left, major companies that are left, um, they all put in in the ratio in which they hire people and they put into a separate um this multi-employer plan that's that's protect you know that's governed by ERISA and Taft Hartley I think that may be the way to do it where you know very small employers buy into existing plans maybe that you know where other other small employers join together and say collectively we have money and resources be able to provide the benefits we'd like to you know to provide but that we can't afford to provide on our own i mean maybe that's some a way to to think about it yeah on a smaller scale than what we already that would exist in the entertainment industry that's great and and another question Mm -hmm. i'll direct this to you is is folks have asked about city level policies to expand benefits and protect workers and you mentioned the work that you're doing in philadelphia and i think NDWA has also been doing work in san francisco uh, can you talk a little bit more about what what's possible at the city level? Oh, I think there's so much creativity and possibility um, at the city level, and I think, um, but I think you know, like from from our so I think there's a lot of possibility, and we should consider cities um, and states like the laboratories for a whole bunch of um, experiments and 
and um, expansion um, around the safety net and how we do that. I think from from our perspective, um, the cities have been incredible partners, and we we had a whole series of partnerships during um, during the early days of the pandemic, where we were working with where Alia the Alia team actually pivoted to be working with the cities to uh, hold a bunch of cities around. Um, emergency cash grants um, to to domestic workers um, and other left behind workers, like workers who weren't gonna benefit from congressional relief. Um, and in that process of working with the cities and administrating um, some of their um, relief funds and you know the ALEA software and team and kind of know-how of serving people who are unbanked and all of that, you know, um, in partnership with our friends at OSF and, and others around the country, like to, to make an intervention quickly um, there was a lot that kind of emerged in terms of um, how to work together with cities and how to run experiments and pilots and and all of that. I do think resources can be um, a challenge um, at the municipal level. So like if you have to think about where do you have the ability to do a pilot, but then are also like sort of the conditions of political conditions are, are there for you, but then also um, are the is the ability to actually effectuate um, a pilot um, there. And then I think for me, I've been thinking a lot more end to end. So like, okay, what does it mean then? So like, okay, you want to do a pilot, for example, this PTO pilot that I want to do in Philadelphia, but how, you know, how does that actually become like, the goal of a pilot should be to replicate and scale, right? And so then the question is like really thinking end to end around, not proving one dimension of the model, although that's super helpful, but the whole, how will the whole model actually work in a way that can be, can be scaled up or moved out? Because um, that would be the goal of doing a pilot, right? And so I think that's where we're really trying to figure out what our role is and how to um, think those things through. Like, and some of those things are super operational and tactical, you know, it's like, who holds the funds? Like, where do they go? Like, what is the, you know, it's just, it's very, very operational and executional. Um, but that's actually what makes, like, will make a safety net expansion project work. Um, and so that, um, that I think has been really exciting, but it's also, um, for us, it's definitely a growing edge in trying to build um, programs um, jointly together. Great. I think we have time for just one last question. And I think we'll do very quickly, 30 seconds each. We'll start with Andrew and then go to Lisa and then Pollock. This is a big question, but if you could try to do it in less than 30 seconds, what's one thing that you'd like to see improve in the lives of the workers that you represent? And, or what can our viewers do to help make that happen? Uh, e e easier to unionize. Mm -hmm. it, it, power solves all the other problems. What Andrew said. <laughs> power solves everything and the easier it is to unionize the the better off all workers will be right so the pro act is a great start Absolutely. Uh, for, for our workers there's there's other things they need too but yep yeah, that's it's all about power perfect lisa and then public last your final word <laughs> well it's definitely it's always about power that in the <laughs> final and final everything it's always about power i think um, from the perspective um, of the topic of this conversation, I think I, I think it's time to to move the conversation from if benefits to how, um, and really you know move out of this space where we're debating how you know if and should it be expanded and blah to okay when and how 
um, our benefits going to be extended um, to everybody uh, who doesn't have access. Great, thank you. And then on that note, we'll conclude here. I want to thank all three of our speakers so much for sharing your insights, your building on your experiences and all the innovative work that you're doing to the audience for listening and engaging in the important conversation to Shelly and the rest of the Aspen team for creating space for this important conversation. Look out for their uh, forthcoming report coming out in the next week or so on universal portable benefits. And thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Amal. Bye, thanks.